Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. You probably could have guessed that. For those of you all who didn't know, when I started teaching, I had a tendency to pace. And I had to stop doing that because I didn't have any room. So I've got to relearn how to walk around while I teach. I did have an odd thought last week uh, while we were discussing uh, the Leonard's, what was it, 68th anniversary? I was born May 4th, 1957. How many of you were married before I was born? (laughs) I was just curious. I had the advantage of being born into a godly family. We went to church probably from the day I was born. For years, I had the scar here where I ran into the table in the nursery as a toddler running around. I uh, went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and I accepted Christ at a very early age, probably five or six I was very involved in uh, choir in church growing up. I think everyone was involved in choir growing up. Uh, I went to church camp every summer, heard the gospel. We would have five or 600 kids just from our church go to church camp. It was a really big deal. I lived in a society that believed that Christianity was probably a good idea. That was a good thing. In fact, the pastor of our church was invited to come to our high school anytime he wanted to and say anything he wanted to. It was just accepted that that was a good thing. I uh, later started uh, participating in different ministry things. We would always sing in the youth choir very early on Sunday and then during the second hour we would go to a nursing home and lead a church service, very short And I would uh, lead the music or preach very short, very short. All of these were opportunities that were given to me to allow me to grow in my faith. Many years later, I met a uh, wonderful young woman, Teresa. Uh, We started dating in, let me get this right, 81, the... um, week after Thanksgiving. She had actually just become a believer the October before that. And I was just so excited and impressed with her love for the Bible, for church. You know, for somebody who had grown up in it, it was a new set of eyes to see things. All of these things were in my life because God was helping me to progress in my faith. Now, after last week's lesson, you may think that there's going to be some horrible ending to this story. There's not. Because you see, last week we talked about Romans 8.28, all things working together for good for those who love God. And we spent most of our time, if not all of our time last week, talking about bad things. How does God use bad things, in spite of the fact that they're bad, to make us conform to the image of his son. But what we oftentimes don't realize is that God uses lots of good things. And we don't have the gratitude to look back and say, God, thank you. 
Instead, we kind of assume the good things are normal, therefore we don't have to show gratitude, and the bad things are abnormal, and somehow God has to explain himself to us. I think I've used this illustration before. When my oldest son was young, he uh, had played Little League Baseball, and his team didn't do that well, but he wanted to go to the finals, the playoff game, just to watch it. So I had some errands to run, and I said, okay, I'll drop you off, and I'll let you watch the game, and then I'll come back in an hour and pick you up. So I drop him off, and he starts to walk away, and I say, come here. And I give him a dollar, and I said, buy yourself a Coke. And his eyes lit up, and he said, thanks, Dad. And off he went. And I'm sitting there thinking, I pay thousands of dollars to buy him food, clothes, a roof over his head, and then no gratitude at all. And then I give him a dollar. Why is that? Because the dollar was unexpected. Everything else was expected. So there was no gratitude. That's the way we are with God. All things work together for good. If I got each of you up here today, you could describe the path that it took to get you to this point. Where you are as a believer, where you are as a person, where you are as a member of this class. In that path would be good things. In that path would be bad things. In that path would be just things, the average things of life. But each of us, God is working to get us to the point where he wants us to be. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Just to remind us, Romans 8:28, all things work together for good. It does not say that all things are good. It doesn't say that. It says that he uses them for good. Most of you probably don't know why I'm teaching this class. 18 years ago, we used to rotate teachers through classes. Okay, I would teach in a class for a while, and then I would go teach in a different class. And I was actually going to take a session off. And on Saturday morning, before Sunday, Ted called me and said, can you come teach the sages for one class? The individual that was supposed to teach it, his wife had left him the day before. Now, was it good that his wife left him? No. It was not good at all. Did God use it to accomplish good things? I hope so. I came for one Sunday, and I've been here for 18 years. <laughs> not, not everything is good, but God can use it to accomplish his purposes. As it says up there, sin is still sin. Don't think I sin and God uses it for good, therefore it's not sin. It's still sin, and it still brings consequences with it. We talked last week that this verse doesn't apply to everybody on the planet. It applies to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And today we're going to talk about what it means to be called according to his purpose. And the big point from last week is that this verse only works if we let God define what good means. And he does that very, very clearly in the next verse. 
Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is the purpose for which we were called? What was the good as defined by God? It is that we be conformed to the image of his Son, so that Christ would be the firstborn among many, many children of God. That is the good. Wait a minute. I don't want that good. <laughs> I want something else. Well, all of us struggle with that conflict between the desires of this world and the desires of heavenly things. This is what we talked about in chapter 6 and 7 and at the first half of chapter 8, the struggle between the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit. That shows we're alive if we're having the struggle. But if you have no desire to be conformed to the image of his son, you are not a believer. You may have mixed desires. I'll accept that because we all struggle with the reality that we still live in this flesh. The purpose for which we were called is to be conformed to the image of his son. Huh. What does that mean? Christ did the will of the Father. We ought to do the will of the Father. Christ suffered. I won't say the next sentence. Christ, in every circumstance, did what God expected him to do. We're also told in the book of Hebrews that Christ learned obedience through the things that he suffered. It's actually a strange verse because we think he had to learn obedience? I mean, let's face it, he was God. Yes, but he was God in flesh, and he had a flesh just like you and I did, yet without sin. He had to learn to bring his flesh into obedience to the will of God just like you and I have to. His purpose is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, that's the easy part. We can dismiss and go home. There's a couple of words here that we don't like. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. I had the opportunity of hearing a, a series of lectures by, um, uh, what is his name, Sinclair, He's a Scottish pastor, at Sinclair Ferguson, that's his name. And he always said predestined. So if I slip into that, predestined. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Generally, when I have taught through the book of Romans, I've skipped these two verses. 
I've skipped these two verses for one reason, and that is because chapter 9 is going to deal with the doctrine of predestination. We're going to talk about what about Israel, and we're going to have long discussions. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated before either one had done anything good. I chose this one. I didn't choose this one. We're going to talk about it in chapter 9. So what we're going to do today is have a little bit of a theology lesson. I'm going to dump all the big words on you, and then I'm going to run out of the room as fast as possible. (laughs) And in two weeks or three weeks, we'll pick up the topic again. Between now and then, you'll notice on the screen, I have never put it up there, there's my email address. If you have a question, please send me an email. It will be on every chart that follows, okay? This is a controversial topic. What does it mean that God chose, that God predestined us to salvation? It kind of jumps in in our face saying, you're not in charge of things. Some basic definitions. I started with the basic dictionary. Predestination, the doctrine that God, in consequences of his foreknowledge of all events, infallibly guides those who are destined for salvation. That's the New Collegiate Dictionary. That definition is wrong. Okay? Definition number two from another dictionary. To foreign to an earthly or eternal lot or destiny by divine decree. That definition is somewhat true. And number three from Charles Ryrie, so it has to be true. God's pretemporal planning of the destiny of his children, the elect. Generally, when I talk about predestination, I have a simple pattern that I go. I start talking until somebody gets mad enough to throw something at me. Okay? I am not nearly as argumentative as I once was in my younger days. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Before the creation of the world, God chose. Anybody offended yet? He chose us before the creation of the world that we would be holy. God adopted us. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. Before the world was created, God chose us. Well, God chose the elect. Maybe I'm in that. Oh. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You remember him? He was actually a a great Calvinist. And he has a quote. Do not imagine for an instance that I pretend to be able thoroughly to elucidate the great mysteries of predestination. There are some men who claim to know all about the matter. They twist it round their fingers as easily if it were an everyday thing. But depend on it. He who thinks he knows about all about this mystery knows but very little. It is but the shallowness of his mind that permits him to see the bottom of his knowledge. He who dives deep finds that there is in the lowest depths 
to which he can obtain a deeper depth still. Even John Calvin, for whom predestination is so closely linked, said this is a hard thing to talk about. In fact, he said there's two errors that we typically run in to when dealing with the topic of predestination. The first is to go further than the scripture permits. The scripture takes you to this edge of this mystery and said God is at work in us as believers since before the creation of the world. But we want to know how it all works. We want to know why. We want to know why God chose person A and not person B. And the Bible doesn't tell us. The second problem is if we ignore what he has told us about the doctrine of predestination. Did you have a question? What's that? Whom God foreknew, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. I'm going to summarize, and then I'm going to contradict her. Okay? It's a great segue. (laughs) No, that's great. The question is not, does God choose? Okay? You have heard people say, I don't believe in the doctrine of predestination. I'm here to tell you that's not biblical. Okay? To not believe in predestination. Predestination is a fact stated in the scripture. God chooses. What people mean, though, when they hear the phrase, I don't believe in predestination, is they don't believe in predestination as interpreted by certain people. And that's what we're going to talk about. The question is not, does God choose? The question is, what is the basis of God's choice? And there's lots of answers. We're going to look at three of them that cover most of the different thinking. Number one, God's choice is based on his foreknowledge. Remember that definition out of the collegiate dictionary that I said was wrong? That's exactly what it said. It works like this. God, looking down through the corridor of history, knows who will respond to the gospel message. And he chooses those whom he knows will respond positively to the message. His choice is predicated on his foreknowledge, his knowledge of things occurring before they occur. This verse that we just read in Romans chapter 8 is the verse that is usually given to support this position. Those whom he foreknew... He predestined. There it is, right there. 
Now, there is a more sophisticated version of this, which says that God, being outside of time to begin with, isn't looking down the corridor of time, you know, like it's a tunnel and we're in it somewhere. He's actually outside of it, so he is continually seeing us. He knows who will respond, and he calls because of his seeing the big picture outside of time. Option number one, God's choice is based on his foreknowledge. Option number two, God's choice is based on his sovereign will. Why did God choose some and not others? Because he's God and he chose. Let me let you in on a little secret that may bother some of you. I believe Romans chapter 9 teaches that position. Okay, That's what we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks when we talk about Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, before either one had done anything good or bad, so that God's sovereign will in salvation could be true. God chose. God chose. Option number two, God, based on his sovereign will, chose some. Now, what are you sitting there thinking? That's not fair. How can God do that? Why would God do that? If God gives somebody the opportunity, God has to give everybody the opportunity. If God allows me to be born into a Christian family to go to a Bible-believing church from the day I was born, to hear gospel messages every Sunday, to go to a Christian camp every summer, to go to a Christian choir, to marry a Christian woman. If God gave me those opportunities, he has to give everybody, but he didn't. And you know he didn't. So God's not fair. All the objections are covered in chapter 9. The third option... I call it the bus version. And there are people, I mean, I don't use that word in a derogatory fashion. Okay, I was talking to a friend at work this week, telling him I was going to talk about predestination, and this is exactly what he believes. It's a group thing, okay? The way I envision it is this. Over there is a bus. The bus is going to heaven. The bus is predestined to go to heaven. The bus will infallibly go to heaven. Now, do you want to be on the bus or not? Go get on the bus or not. There is no choice about who gets on the bus. The predestination is, does the bus make it to heaven? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. That is a group version of predestination. I have some problems with this. It sounds good. We like it, except for the fact whenever the Bible talks about choosing, it's always choosing people not a group. There are lots of different options that people offer. Predestination is a topic, as been mentioned earlier, that has divided lots and lots of people. Let me tell you what I believe about predestination. Just put it out there, be done with it, okay? Salvation begins with God. At some point in time, God worked in my life to save me. And God, in his sovereign will, set up a chain of events to get me to that point. Because 
God works all things together for good. Why? So that I would not boast about anything. I am not going to stand up here and say, I deserved to be born into a Christian family. I deserved to go to a... I didn't. I didn't. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now here's the strange thing. God was working all things together for good before I was born. God will continue to work all things together for good after I died. And that's what verses 29 and 30 are telling us. There is an order to salvation. Let's look at this again. For those whom he foreknew, there's the knowledge, God knows all things. What is the content of this knowledge? Is it, as option one up here says, that God knows who will respond to the gospel and God saves them? Is that the foreknowledge? Well, it doesn't talk about it in that sense. It doesn't talk about knowing a particular thing. Throughout the scripture, when it talks about knowing someone, it's more than just having a set of facts. In fact, it means having a relationship with someone to the point that you see it where this man knew this woman and she became his wife. What did he know? They had intimate relationships. It's not just a factual knowledge. I know about certain people. This is a relational, I have a relationship with this person. I foreknew them. And here's the question. Is this verse a funnel? What do I mean by that? He foreknows everybody. He predestines some. He chooses others. And he works his way down and by the end... Or is this a pipe? Those whom he foreknew, all of them he predestined. And I believe it is a pipe. Everyone that he had a knowing relationship with before the foundation of the world. Y'all aren't screaming yet. You're going to send me an email. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. What is the predestined? He chose them because of the relationship that he had, because of his foreknowledge, he predestined them. And skipping to verse 30, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. We have been talking since the day we started the book of Romans about justification. That's what the book of Romans is all about. How am I declared righteous before a holy God? That's justification. And most of us think that's where salvation starts. The passage tells us that it starts way before that. It is interesting, if I were writing this passage, I would have included sanctification in there. Those he justified, he also sanctified, and those he sanctified, he also glorified. But you've got to look at who he's talking about. It's like there's these boxes of, what is it? Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, 
sanctification, glorification. And I'm standing here in this box labeled sanctification. That's what all of the first half of Romans chapter 8 has been about. Living a life of the spirit, not a life of the flesh. So I'm standing in this box. And what Paul is saying is, look back that way. It's all been God. It was God from before the world was created. It was God. Now, look forward. It's all God. Glorification. The same person who worked that way is going to work this way. You're standing right here. And we, what's the inference of that? God's doing that. God's doing that. God's probably doing the box I'm standing in right now. That is the sanctification. So salvation does not begin with justification. Justification is when God works that, declares you righteous based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, back to predestination. A very quick history lesson to throw out some very big words so that you can impress your friends. All I'm trying to do is set the framework so that when we get to chapter 9, you'll know what we're talking about. But also to connect all of this to Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good. This is his good. So, the quick history lesson. There was a British monk, what was it? 354 to 420, by the name of Pelagius. Anybody ever heard of him? He had something known as Pelagianism. Pelagianism says, well, you might need grace. You might not need grace. God has probably given you everything you need to live a godly life. You just need to, I don't want to trivialize it, you just need to buck up and get it done. Okay? St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, wrote numerous books against Pelagius because he said Pelagius is denying the necessity of grace. And his doctrine became as known as Augustinianism. Okay? So on one side we have Pelagianism, and on the other side we have Augustinianism. Well, Augustinian, Augustine, taught predestination. God chose. So there were those in the church who didn't particularly like it, and so they settled somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Depending on whether you liked it or not, it was either semi-Pelagianism, if you thought it was a heresy, or it was semi-Augustinianism, if you thought it was okay. And that's what most of the church believed. I'm going to tell you what this is in just a moment. Many years later, this guy by the name of Martin Luther came along and started the Protestant Reformation. When he posted his statements of belief on the door and said, here, I want to debate these things, some of which dealt with predestination. But the intellectual heavyweight of the Reformation was John Calvin. He wrote his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which stated his beliefs about salvation and how it differed from what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. He died, and a man by the name of Arminius said, okay, Calvin is great, the Reformation is great, 
But he went a little bit too far. Okay? What Calvin did was he returned the church to what Augustine had taught, and the church didn't like it. They liked that semi-Pelagianism. So, out of Arminius, we came up with Arminianism. I'm going to explain all this in just a moment, but I'll let you on a hint. Most of you are Arminians. Okay? Well, yeah, most of you are. (laughs) So, after Jacobus, Arminius, had his five points where he disagreed with the teachings of the reformers, the reformers had a meeting. I mean, isn't that what people do, right? You have a committee meeting called the Synod of Dort, and they responded to Arminius's comments about the Reformation, and their response became known as Calvinism. Let me give you an illustration. It'll all fall into place. I go to the doctor because I'm not really feeling that well. I'm a little tired, a little stressed out. I'm not feeling well. The doctor says, the problem is you eat too much junk food, you drink too many Cokes, you don't exercise, you stand at that stupid desk all day long or sit at that stupid desk and sit and watch TV. If you got out, ate right, exercised, cut down on the stress a little bit, you'll be okay. That is Pelagianism. The belief that I have it within me right now to heal, to cure myself. I've just got to do it. I may need some help. You know, you may need to come along and tell me what a good diet looks like, hold me accountable, all that stuff, but I've got it all inside of me. That's Pelagianism. That is heresy. And I might add, most of our society today are Pelagians. We're humans. (laughs) The belief that I could, if I really wanted to, fix myself. Arminianism is this. I go to the doctor. I can relate to this because I did this. I go to the doctor. The doctor says you're going to die unless you take this medicine. Okay? I asked the doctor, my doctor one time, okay, if I don't go through this chemo, what's going to happen? You'll be dead in a year. Okay? But I can choose to take the medicine or not. I have that choice. I have a terminal illness, but I can choose or not to take the medicine. That is Arminianism. Option three. I'm not sick. I'm dead. I am in the morgue. I am cold. There is no pulse. There is no breath. I am dead. And God comes and says, wake up. And when I wake up, what do I do? I sing hallelujah and I accept God. That is Calvinism. We were not sick. We were not 
just not feeling quite well. We were dead. I am not, I know you may not believe this after I finish this lesson, and particularly the lesson in a couple of weeks, I am not a Calvinist, but I'm more of a Calvinist than you are, most of you. I remember distinctly sitting in a sermon. I know who was preaching this sermon. He is a great preacher. He has preached in our church. He is not one of our staff members. I know this guy. I have sat in this sermon, and he was talking about Ephesians. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And he goes on and on and on. We are dead. We are dead. We cannot do anything. What can dead people do? Nothing. We're dead. We're dead. We're dead. And then he gets to the end and says, what do we need to do? Except Jesus Christ. And I wanted, I did. I wanted to jump up. I was in college at this time. I wanted to jump up and say, dead people don't. You get the picture, right? God is working in salvation from day one. So, just because people have asked, that is the only reason I'm doing this, we're going to talk about the five points of Calvinism. Okay? I will tell you right now, I was raised in a good Baptist church. We were three-point Calvinist. Three of these five we held to. Okay? I jokingly today refer to myself as a four-point Calvinist. I believe three and half of the other two. <laughs> Not the two half of, half of each one. Okay? What does it mean? The five points are usually remembered by the acrostic tulip. So if anyone ever asks you what you think about tulip, that's what it is. It is the five points of Calvinism. The first point is total depravity. Total depravity means you can't do anything to earn your way to heaven. Have we discussed this enough working our way through the book of Romans? Now, it doesn't say that you are as bad as you could be. Theologians use the phrase absolute depravity to mean you're as bad as you could possibly be. Nobody is as bad as they could be. Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, Joseph Stalin could have been worse. Sometimes you have trouble imagining it, but they could have been. But what this does mean is that every part of who you are is so permeated with sin that you can do nothing to earn, merit, or bring about your salvation. Jacob Arminius said, there's enough of God's original creation in you that you can say yes. That was what this was refuting. Number two, you, unconditional election. If there is nothing good in you, if there's nothing in you that is attractive to God, then God's salvation of you is based on no condition of you. And we hate that. We hate that. We talk about election but we want to believe that God chose us because we were better, 
smarter, better looking, are just nicer people than those people over there. But if the T is true, total depravity, what would God see in you that would draw you and not someone else? Now, we don't like this because we get the feeling that God is flipping a coin. God is not flipping a coin. God is making choices based on his, his, his will, not ours. Bothers a lot of people. L, limited atonement. Here is where you separate the true Calvinist from the rest of us. That's all of us. Who did Christ die for? That's the question. We're very familiar with the idea of the atonement. Remember last year we did, we started in Exodus, you know, the sacrifice, uh, the day, the Passover. They slit the throat of the animal. They put the blood on the doorpost and that blood covered everyone in that house. It was an atonement for everyone that was in that house. Question, if Christ's blood is the atoning sacrifice, who is covered by it? Option one, all the world. And there's lots of verses that will give you that idea. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Option two, Christ died for the elect. The question is this, did God die to provide potential salvation for everyone, or did Christ die to provide actual uh, salvation for the elect? If God had chosen from the beginning of time, why would he die for those who were not chosen? As I said, that's what separates the men from the boys in the Calvinist camp. I need to hurry. Number four, I, irresistible grace. If you are chosen, you will be saved. Now, this bothers people because it carries with it this idea that there are some people who truly want to be saved and God says no. And there are others who don't want to be saved and God drags them into the kingdom anyway. Well, Back to our analogy earlier, you're dead, okay? You're dead in the morgue. God revives you. What are you going to respond? How are you going to respond when God revives you? Hallelujah. Tell me what to do. It is irresistible because it is so appealing when God calls you and brings you to salvation. Go back to Romans chapter 3. There are none who do what is right. There are none who seek after God. Everyone does his own thing. We are all wicked, etc., etc., etc. Question. Those people don't want to be saved unless God moves in their lives. And the final one is the perseverance of the saints. Those whom God has saved, he will protect to the very end. Those whom he justified, he will glorify. But if you believe that, like Arminius, that item number one up there, total depravity, means there's enough of you left 
to make the choice, and you make the choice, then there's probably enough of you left to unmake the choice, and you can lose your salvation. That's really what this is dealing with. We as a church believe that once you are truly saved, you cannot and will not lose your salvation. That's what perseverance of the saints means. <sighs> Unfortunately, we're out of time. But I have to conclude. Go ahead. Please. Of some form or another. Right. I quoted Spurgeon a while ago. Spurgeon was a hardcore Calvinist. And he made the comment one time, God saved the elect and then elect some more. <laughs> there is this belief that if you believe in the doctrine of predestination, you can't possibly believe in evangelism. You can't. If it's already determined, why would you go evangelize anyone? D. James Kennedy developed what became known as, what? Evangelism explosion, which was probably one of the more effective evangelistic tools that was used in this country. Teresa was saved because the sweet elderly lady who ran the singles department at our Baptist church came up to her and asked, if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? If you were to die today, if you went to the pearly gates and God said, why should I let you in, what would you say? Well, because I'm a good person, blah, blah, blah. Okay? All of that came from evangelism explosion. D. James Kennedy had to write a book to try to convince people that he was, in fact, a five-point Calvinist, because nobody believed him. Even after he wrote the book, nobody believed him. Because we have it so ingrained in our head that if I believe this, that God has chosen, that I will not... Why do we evangelize? Number one, God told us to do it. Number two, God uses it to accomplish his end. One final comment, and as I said, please send me your questions because we're going to talk about this more. All the objections are covered in chapter 9. And, and, and I know what they are. I know what you want to tell me. <laughs> Go ahead. Is that not the right one? Ooh, that's a different one. Oh, that's supposed to say Gmail instead of LMCO. That's not a real address. <laughs> I did that on purpose so nobody would send me a note. <laughs> oh, the trouble we cause. It's Kyle Scarborough 2 at gmail.com. Gmail. There is no one at that address that I know of. I told you that Teresa and I had been dating, and I had been reading some book about Calvinism. 
And I was spewing all this stuff about Calvinism that I didn't really understand, and I still don't understand it. And she, now she's left, I can talk about her, she started crying. I'm going, what? Why? Well, she had unsaved family members and friends, and the thought that it was predestined bothered her, rightfully so. The thing we need to understand is the doctrine of predestination isn't a curse. It is the blessing that God is going to accomplish his purpose. He is going to work to save people. Is everybody going to be saved? No. The scripture is pretty clear that not everybody is going to be saved. But what this passage tells us is that God is going to work from eternity past to eternity future to accomplish his goal. Who can be saved? Anybody. If I were going to, in my own flesh, go out and witness to people, I'd go look for nice, good people just like me. God saves anybody. We can sit here and say, whosoever will may come. We can say that with the authority of the Scripture, knowing that some will come and some won't. And it may bother us because somehow we have to justify God's behavior. It is interesting. Last week we talked about bad stuff. Ooh, how can we defend God? We don't have to defend God. God is the sovereign of the universe. And we need to submit to it. But more than that, we need to rest, rest in the knowledge that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Forgive us, Lord, when we stray beyond what you have told us, but I pray, Lord, that we would understand your will and your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.